Joel Whitney is the author of Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. This is Joel Whitney. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. Uh, I'm here with Joel Whitney. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Uh, so you wrote a, a very interesting book uh, about a very particular uh, event in Cold War history, but that sort of touches on uh, a lot more. And it's called uh, Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best writer, uh, Writers. Rather. Um, and I, I'm curious because uh, you, you're taking something like the Paris Review, which is maybe uh, the most well-regarded literary magazine in the world, certainly up there. And in today's world, I feel like most ordinary people, most normies, probably haven't even heard of the Paris Review. Uh, <laughs> That's probably true. L- let alone like Reddit uh, on, on an right. uh So I, I want to get into like the who, what, how, etc. cetera. Uh, but why would the CIA care about establishing a literary magazine? That was my first question too. Um, and uh, it was perplexing to me at first, um, just to give a tiny bit of background about when I first heard about this and why it uh, became um, a concern of mine uh, enough to, to spend years uh, answering the question in a book. Um, you know, I, I had started a literary magazine with some friends in the early, well, actually as the Bush administration was going into its second term. And, uh, it seemed natural to put together politics, you know, political punditry from the left, anti-war punditry, along with poetry and fiction and literary magazines. Um, But a lot of people who were older pointed to the Paris Review as an example of how you can keep the precious, uh, you know, politics often feels like a shit show. And um, there are people whose instincts um, lean toward protecting the pure things in life from politics by keeping them separate. And I think that that was how a lot of people described the Paris Review to me. Um, I was at the time someone who had done a, an MFA in writing, and um, I knew of the Paris Review as kind of the gold standard for political, uh, sorry, for non-political kind of literary magazines. Um, so that was why it was so strange to read, I think, in the New York Times uh, sometime right before or in the very early part of the Obama administration that the Paris Review had CIA ties. And the article in question was around this film by um, the great Amy Humes, whose dad was one of the co-founders. Anyway, long story short, there is the soft power question. And I think at uh, the moment when World War II is kind of pivoting into the the kind of movement to stop Soviet communism. Uh, There's this idea that Europeans don't regard the United States as kind of the intellectual or creative powerhouse that maybe they should if they think about the right things, if they think about Faulkner, Hemingway, Um, If there are magazines like the Paris Review or older ones that preceded it. Um, And the way that they thought some of this could happen, I think there there was a consortium of a lot of people pushing for this idea. Uh, 
of the quasi ministry of culture. Like we will win the cold war by making sure people don't dismiss us just because there's a kind of a crass side to American culture. So, you know, in, in light of the, the way that the war had brought together these different countries and that the Marshall Plan was being enacted on Europe in a way that was both helpful, but also would make some ordinary Europeans feel uh, beholden to American power and that these, these funds would come with strings. There was a lot of resentment. And so the Cold Warriors who came up with this idea of funding culture, they had to do it uh, in their minds to win the Cold War through soft power. They also were trying to avoid a long series of traps and contradictions that, you know, Americans don't like to fund culture. Um, there was one incident where it backfired, where they tried to do it through the State Department openly. But the long and short of it is this resulted in a secret fund for culture that went through, um, first through the Marshall Fund, uh, and then through the CIA because its funds were unaccountable. So the Paris Review is not the result necessarily of that, but um, it, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was created out of this intelligence world late late 40s the Paris Review was actually one agent Peter Matheson's part of part of his cover and there were other people who were trying to create a literary magazine um, who were not part of this scheme uh, that, that Peter Matheson was part of so I can unpack any of that but the short answer is it's complicated <laughs> yeah but uh, yeah I'm having done a bit of traveling America's cultural hegemony really is I mean, kind of our, our biggest influence. Like I remember being on like a, a rooftop in India. I, I had just gotten there that week and people were playing like Britney Spears music. And they're like, oh man, I love Britney. And I'm like, wow, this is, you, you almost can't escape America in that sense. Yeah. And it, it's, it's shocking to see how much of this was directly funded, you know? Right. And um, you mentioned the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is, of course, a very Orwellian name for an organization. <laughs> what, uh, what exactly did they do? They, they kind of gave some money to the Paris Review early on, like advertising? Yeah, if you, if you, if you tell the story strictly through the Paris Review, some of the details can get lost. The Congress for Cultural Freedom was one of the outlets that tried to do this work that, um, you know, a lot of people have described in altruistic terms like funding culture to win the Cold War. Um, there are some scholars who've looked carefully into their records to see if, if it was in fact altruistic. And, and, and I'm among those who, who think that it wasn't. Um, it, it basically was a kind of ministry of culture designed specifically to be anti-communist. And so, it won't sound Orwellian if you accept how it describes itself. Um, with one caveat, it, it always hid its ties to the CIA. So it was a cultural front created by the CIA. That was the first thing that they erased from the record. They pretended uh, that it was, you know, it was a series of foundations. One of the big ones was the Farfield Foundation. So they basically went to rich people and said, will you let us create a dummy foundation in your name so we can hide that the CIA is funding uh, literature and other arts. Um, and again, that was the goal with soft power. Uh, 
once they hide who's doing it, a lot of other things remain hidden, including the rampant censorship that resulted uh, from this plan. But basically, in a nutshell, they created magazines. Um, they were highbrow magazines. They were intended to say, yeah, if you associate um, America with Sherman tanks and, you know, some of the coups that they were starting to get into or the enormous amounts of money that we bring into Europe through the Marshall Fund, um, so on and so forth, uh, the Marshall Plan rather, um, then you're missing Faulkner, you're missing the Boston Symphony Orchestra, you're missing Hemingway, and you're, you know, later on you're missing you know, great jazz and abstract expressionism. Um, so the Congress for Culture Freedom was created, I think in late forties it launched with a big, a big rally in Berlin in 1950. It was originally based in Berlin. A year or two later, they moved to Paris. Um, and, and it was kind of the, 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 the sophisticated American front. It was trying to say, uh, don't forget that we have great ideas in the United States. Um, and uh, here are some of our arguments. Here are some of our artists. Here are some of our painters. Here are some of our um, symphony orchestras. So they created a tour. They, they sent uh, the Boston Symphony Orchestra on its first European tour. They helped organize uh, an early abstract expressionist exhibit and tour in Europe. Um, and the magazines that they created, uh, I think, got into, I think, you know, people typically say up to three dozen. They used to say two dozen. I think they're still being discovered, these, these hidden sort of secret CIA magazines. Um, and some... Some of the lists I've seen are, are missing quite a few, including the, the one called Horizon in uh, Indonesia. But basically they were intellectual magazines on the order of um, like, what would the Paris Review sound like if it had op-eds um, from a liberal centrist perspective, uh, sometimes in favor of interventions. Ultimately, the new leader was pretty standard uh, type of this magazine. It existed before the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, but the Congress ended up funding it once they saw how anti-communist it was. So you basically had magazines that had people as diverse as James Baldwin and Jorge Luis Borges. I mean, in diversity in terms of style, um, Borges or Gabriel Garcia Marquez were these. These were major figures who were in some of these journals um, for their creative work. So you'd get these kinds of names on the cover, but then in the op-ed, you'd be reading uh, the seed movement of the neocon interventionist movement in the United States, people who actually did uh, much later on uh, go on to start wars like the Iraq war. So you'd have an article defending the United States from claims in Chile that it was um, starting to do cool like stuff before uh, the overthrow of Salvador Allende. Um, and then you'd have, you know, these interviews with, you know, great international writers. So it was very much like a Trojan horse. Wow. Yeah. C come for the culture, stay for the interventionism. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's so, did any of these writers, by the way, after the fact, after this has all been discovered, have they come out and talked about like regret or I don't know, complicity? A lot of them, um, and I quote them in the book, a, a few of the notable ones did so um, 
person to person in, in exchanges with their editors. Um, usually you wouldn't, you wouldn't see it if it happened uh, over the phone, but there were some letters where these kinds of conversations happened and they were tough conversations. So for instance, Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, has two chapters of his great breakout novel, 100 Years of Solitude, excerpted in subsequent editions of the magazine created for Latin America based in Paris called Mundo Nuevo, New World. <clears throat> and um, his second excerpt was in the same issue that was coming out when the CIA, the Congress for Cultural Freedom was outed as a CIA front. Um, and he wasn't happy because this was understood to be his breakout book that will lead to his you know, wild success. Um, and so he wrote to his editor and uh, basically complained and said he felt like a cuckold. Um, but he felt like the two of them were brought together in a cuckold-like relationship. He was respectful to his editor, but he, he was also tough. And he said, I will never write for your magazine again. Um, and this was at a time when publicly a lot of the centrist intellectuals were defending this as this kind of altruistic program with no strings. And that argument held for a long time. Um, and I think it really finally broke um, you know, these things happen in stages, but in 2000, 1999, 2000, when Francis Stoner Saunders um, goes to examine their archives and finds that they, they censored quite a lot. Um, and we can get into that more, but, but even before that, I think people recognized it for what it was. And one of the things Garcia Marquez said, I think held true, and you see this in the letters that were not made public, um, where the whispers were always there. It was kind of an open secret that some function of the US state funded these magazines. And you could, you could, you could detect that ideologically just by reading the op-eds. Um, and if you were, let's say a refugee from communism, then you know, obviously it would feel good to know that all of these great movements, liberalism, some of the great works of novelists and poetry and uh, you know, freedom of expression and these fronts were marshaled against what was widely considered to be an evil system in the Stalinist uh, communist system in the Soviet Union. But um, if you were coming out of a tradition of free speech that you took at face value and you looked at what uh, somebody like Francis Stoner Saunders found, you would see that it was set up to be a censorship. It, it was set up to be kind of a structured censorship, like an automatic no. If someone was criticizing the US or one of its allies in too heated a way, um, if it was criticizing sort of the NATO alliance, either culturally or directly, if it was criticizing American interventionism or hypocrisy, and a lot of people did get censored. So going back to like what these folks said, if they spoke out, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I don't know that he ever spoke out publicly. He just wrote to his editor and said, I'm out. Yeah. And this is what it feels like. And, and I'm not happy. Um, there was another guy who did the same thing who ended up defending it publicly, but criticizing it privately. And he lends my book Fink's its name. Basically he wrote long letters to, um, people like Daniel Bell, who was one of the brains behind the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And he said, you know, I think what you're all saying publicly just isn't true in the Latin American magazine. This guy's name was Keith Botsford and he worked in Latin America. And he also worked, uh, he was kind of brought in to try to run Penn International in London. 
And so from his vantage, he saw in Latin America, he saw rampant um, censorship. And he knew that the magazine that Mundo Nuevo replaced was really far to his political right. And he called it a Fink magazine. Um, he described the editor as a Fink editor. <laughs> and uh, he was basically saying nobody read it because it was so obviously a centrist conservative instrument of American power and the writers chosen badly. And um, he was happy that Mundo Nuevo kind of moved, made this movement to the left. It's kind of a movement that at the time they called an opening to the left, uh, people working at the CIA sort of whispering to each other in secret. They wanted to engage the movement uh, defending Cuba um, from American intervention and defending Cuban politics from the attacks uh, by writers and so on. Um, by having an opening to the left and by sort of managing a debate uh, in Nuevo. So basically what you see in the 50s, some of these magazines are too far to the right to work. And uh, Botsford was calling them out. So in the 60s, with the rise of the new left, they posed or they, they moved a little bit to the left to draw people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez in. But a lot of times it remained kind of a Trojan horse-like system. So Botsford writes about this and he comes up with this analogy. He said it would be the equivalent, what, what we were doing in magazines, uh, the one before Mundo Duevo was called, something like Notebooks for Cultural Freedom or Notes for Cultural Freedom, Cuadernos de la Libertad Cultural, something like that. Um, and he's saying what we were doing in magazines like that would be the equivalent of uh, an academic scientist who thinks that he's being paid to do real science, but what he finds out when he looks through the, the shell companies that actually fund him is that he's being used to do science in the name of military exercises uh, for causes that he may not approve of and probably doesn't, but in a way that he can't even dissent from because it's so well hidden. Um, so his analogy was actually worded much better than that. And I quote it in the book, but he said all this in a seven page letter to Daniel Bell and to others. And when some of his writers complained to him, I think he showed a lot of sympathy, but in the end, publicly he defended it. And he, he seemed to, to, to maintain that defense. Uh, even when I tried to interview him uh, while writing this book, he died soon thereafter. Um, but not a lot of people, uh, went on the record to criticize it. One early critic who I think coined the phrase cultural uh, Cold War was Christopher Lash. And after it was exposed in 67, um, Lash wrote an essay about uh, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And I think he nailed it. He described it as basically an attempt to do McCarthyism without it reading as lowbrow. It was like highbrow McCarthyism. So it was understood, and I think this I think this conversation, this question they're asking matters because this is what I was after in the, when, when we founded uh, our online magazine together, Guernica, during the Bush administration. Why do liberals kind of roll over with right-wing movements to start wars and to do interventions? Why does their need to be tough on communism result in kind of a corruption of our own institutions. That's how I felt reading, you know, reading about certain magazines in the lead up to the Iraq war 
in uh, 2002, 2003, and afterwards in 2004, I felt like liberals went along with something that if you just heard the, the very poor arguments for, you would, you, would, you would push back against this, and they weren't. And so what you see when you look very carefully at why some of these folks complained, um, you see this corruption of our own institutions. Um, now you could say a literary magazine is not a, not a major sort of, it's not a mass publication. As you rightly pointed out, Duncan, uh, even though the Paris Review is the gold standard, most Americans have never probably touched a copy because literary magazines are read by very few people. Um, but it's, there's an idea that they're super spreaders, that your book can get published when it's excerpted in uh, a magazine like that. So it, magazines like the Paris Review and, and other magazines have launched major writers um, like Samuel Beckett, for instance, uh, um, or you know even major popular writers, the Paris Review did help launch Philip Roth, who had a really wondrous career in the United States until he retired relatively recently. Um, so literary magazines are kind of super spreaders of culture. And that's one reason that they matter on the positive side. Um, but when you think about them as mass instruments, they're not. And so one reason I think this also matters, even given the small readership of literary magazines is because once the Congress for Cultural Freedom was exposed, also by a small magazine called Ramparts and the New York Times working kind of in tandem, um, and a few others assisting like um, uh, well, some of this happened later, but when it's called out, the CIA doubles down on its secrecy and starts penetrating magazines at home. Um, and it's unclear when this starts, but they also start seeding their agents throughout the mainstream media. So 67, this is exposed. 67, 68, the CIA starts to um, invest in guarding the secret. Um, discrediting people who are exposing the secret, trying not to get exposed or scooped. And it turns into a couple of major media penetrations. Um, so a few of those were exposed in 77, we can get into that. But basically I'm, I'm aware that I'm giving very long answers. Um, it's, it, what's, what's interesting is the fact that what, what you're saying, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, the famous Andrew Breitbart quote, that politics is downstream of culture. And it seems like part of what the CIA was doing here was it was almost sort of playing to a certain market demographic of people who were invested in highbrow literary ideas, the kinds of people who, as you said, would super spread these ideas elsewhere, and furthermore, who might be susceptible to sort of, uh, I don't know, left-wing ideas. And one of the things that, that struck me early on in this conversation was how you had, even though this has been exposed, you had people when you were starting your literary magazine, older people saying, look to the Paris Review as a standard. And similarly with like abstract expressionism, uh, that was championed by the CIA above uh, like realism. Uh, whereas in the Soviet Union, like Soviet realism, where it's all paintings of like people you know, doing hard work and being good Soviets was championed above abstract expressionism. And I don't think you would have, even today with that knowledge, I think a lot of art critics 
particularly in the West, would be like, look, these abstract expressionist paintings, maybe they were championed by CIA, CIA, but they were also just better than a lot of like the realist work and they were more innovative and exciting. And why do you think, do you think, I mean, just the fact that they had to be highbrow, do you think that the justification for, in the case of these literary magazines, sort of like separating politics from the art, besides the fact that the CIA championed that idea, do you think there's any merit to, to that uh, belief? Or why do you think it's caught on so much? Yeah, I think it, I think it's, it's become, I think it's, I think it's spread through both the carrot and the stick. Um, but I want to just back up quickly uh, to what you said about abstract expressionism is just better than say Soviet realism. And I think that that idea is easy to say if you're not comparing it to something real. Now, if you compare Jackson Pollock's paintings to uh, any number of things, Jackson Pollock's paintings will hold up nicely. But if you compare abstract expressionism to the murals of Diego Rivera, who was very much committed to a kind of working class realism, um, pushing for a Mexicanity, a Mexicanness that brought together um, popular movements, paintings of ordinary people in the arts. Um, I mean, paintings of ordinary people in labor doing, doing, you know, carrying flowers to the market to sell um, and, and bringing uh, the poorest, the most marginalized Mexicans, namely the indigenous Mexicans into the conversations, then you can see this idea that we just have better art um, falls apart. The United States was committed uh, to changing the subject from great political art and, and, and trying very hard never to fund it. Um, when it seemed like that argument would work, you can even go back to somebody like John Steinbeck, who wrote very much from a working class perspective and was ensnared in this. Um, John Steinbeck actually did a couple things. Uh, favorable to the Congress for Cultural Freedom and may have been a member. Um, but earlier in his career, he was doing this kind of writing that wasn't necessarily frowned upon. Uh, it, it was amazing how flexible the CIA editors proved to be. So when they needed to win an argument against Soviet realism, they would let Soviet realism be just sort of a, an abstract idea, no pun intended. Um, but when it came to attacking somebody like Diego Rivera, it would it would tend to happen because he put ahead of Stalin in there, or I'm sorry, ahead of ahead of Lenin. Famously, uh, this is before the Congress for Cultural Freedom in 1940. He was commissioned to paint a mural in Rockefeller Center, um, and because he added in an image of Lenin, uh, the whole thing was destroyed. Um, so. I think it's tricky. I th I've heard a lot of bad arguments. Um, on Twitter since my book came out and, and on this question in general, that basically are coming from a right-wing perspective and they're trying to say the CIA tried so hard to become sympathetic that it ended up basically champion, championing left-wing movements. That's not true. The CIA had this opening to the left to try to beat their arguments, but it created a clear line, what you could not say, and, and you would see it enforced when someone got censored but you would also see the censorship quickly get papered over uh, um, so that 
they could maintain their reputation as kind of altruistic supporters of the arts. So there were any number of people from Dwight McDonald to James Baldwin to, um, like I said, Diego Rivera to Lorraine Hansberry, whose work was altered, pushed a certain way, um, suppressed, uh, unpublished after being accepted, and so on and so forth that I try to trace. John Berger was another example whose book was kind of taken off the shelves after some Congress for Cultural Pe Freedom people um, critiqued it as, as pro-Stalin uh, when it was not quite that explicitly pro-Stalin. Um, but so this idea is nevertheless rampant um, that, uh, you know, a political novel, for instance, knows too much and that a real writer goes in like Robert Frost said, I think smartly, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Um, so we shouldn't know too much going in. And I think there's some truth to that, that is, is true in itself. But I also think that that idea has been used uh, and reinforced through censorship to also, you know, keep people from having are feeling like they have the freedom to exercise uh, any kind of art that they want. And one example I think is important is this is a writer in Indonesia uh, who in 1965 was arrested by the Suharto dictatorship that the US supported um, when it helped overthrow Sukarno. He was arrested and um, sent to some prisons. A few years into his imprisonment, he was sent to a far Eastern gulag called Buru, an island called Buru. He was not allowed pen or paper. He was um, he was cursed to forced labor for another 10 years or something. His total imprisonment was 14 years. He wasn't allowed to write. He was visited occasionally by, by journalists from Asia and from the West. Um, and he was obviously in misery. He wasn't really allowed to write to his family. He would have notes smuggled to his family back in Jakarta. And all he wanted to do, and his only crime that I could find looking into his life, uh, was that he wrote from a social realist perspective. And he wrote from that perspective in the context of Indonesia having just thrown off the Dutch. It's a little more complicated than that. The, the, the Dutch were kicked out by the Japanese during World War II, and then the Dutch came back with the United States backing them. Um, after some negotiations and some fighting, the Dutch finally left in the late 40s. And so Indonesia finds its institutions really hampered by colonialism uh, and, and by constant bouts of forced labor, which is, you know, colonialism's one of its methods, uh, forcing people into this hierarchy of, of uh, racial racial otherness, you know, even though the, the people who live there, um, forcing them to do free labor, slave labor, and things like that. That was the Dutch's almost 400-year legacy. And so the institutions are not democratic, as much as the West likes to think of itself as the sort of the super spreaders of democracy. They, they were the colonialists around the world. Um, and the Dutch left uh, these institutions really hampered by these racial hierarchies and other kinds of hierarchies. And so for someone like him to see his literature, his wonderful novels, he, he wrote something called the Buru Quartet while in prison, um, for him to think that the Western idea of literature free of politics makes sense is goofy. 
it's it's ridiculous he is you know we we don't have a sense of this unless we go all the way back to post-revolutionary war when all of the uh, american institutions need to be kind of rethought post post britain but even that is hampered by the fact that you know the americans were kind of taking over the genocide against the native americans and the slave system uh, that was imported by england um and so if we had done what he was trying to do in indonesia we might have we might have seen our our artists and writers trying to do nation building through literature as part of a greater effort um, to do nation building politically but in the end his book his buru quartet got him nominated for the nobel after he got out he got he was freed in 79. He published the first two, I think, in 81, came out soon thereafter in English. Um, and it was still illegal for him to publish. And the U.S. is still supporting Suharto. So that's a, another long-winded way of saying this idea that was kind of an aside in your original question, uh, that, you know, it is, is our art that's free of politics better than theirs. I, I don't think any part of that is 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 true, although it always feels true. And I myself, looking at it in a vacuum, would say like the magazines of the CIA and the Cold Warriors who are cultural Cold Warriors did a great job showing how many great writers we have and kind of giving this idea of like an apolitical literature is one that's gonna hold up better than a very sort of left-wing or nation-building literature. But I think there are so many caveats that it, it becomes kind of incoherent. But anyway, I think I, 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 I jumped on a part of your question. I might have missed it. Well, no, I, I think um, I, I think that that's an interesting sort of line to take because uh, you mentioned like Jackson Pollock, Diego Rivera. Uh, Jackson Pollock, of course, like learned from Diego Rivera a lot uh, and sort of was, was a number of like uh, what could be called social realist um, or they weren't exactly realist painters, but uh, they informed, they had social content and informed a guy like Jackson Pollock, among other artists. Um, I, I do think, you, you mentioned the caveats as well. I think one of them that might be in there, and this is part of coming from my perspective, the background of, uh, I'm, an, I'm, I'm an engineer, and in the world hmm. of engineering and science, you really are looking for answers. And it feels like in the world of art, um, sort of at best, you're just like really framing the question in a good way. And so I, I think to say politics free of art seems silly because politics is you know, how we organize our societies. It's just a huge part of human life. So I don't see how you can exclude that from art. Um, but even when I read like, um, w when I feel like I read a work that has answers, whether they're moral answers, intellectual answers, or political answers, it even if I agree with those answers, it always kind of, I don't know, it irritates me on some level. Like this is not this is not the realm to be doing that. Only because it's like okay, an essay would be a better format for that to to, to produce an answer because you can cite sources, you can make like long winded arguments. Whereas there's something about the context of art that when you're delivering political answers, it almost feels like you're sort of pulling the wool over my eyes of like, you are making more than just an emotional appeal. You're investing me in some grand story that is sweeping me off my feet and could easily 
be influencing me in ways that I'm not just looking at this rationally. You see what I mean? I do. I think, I think the, the problem is um, the kind of art that starts with politics only and ends with bad, you know, aesthetics. Um, so I think we see it more easily when it's, uh, you know, there's bad characterization. There's, there's, there's no sort of plot line or big turn at the end. There's no, so, I mean, again, you answer it in the abstract, you're talking about all arts at once. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to agree with that sentiment. But if you go back to something concrete, like Promodius novels, you know, not everyone loves them, but um, the Buru Quartet starts with basically the story of a young student who is pro-Western in the Dutch system. Um, and he learns to become a, a writer and a magazine editor. And in that process, um, his beloved girlfriend's who becomes his wife um, is sent back to Holland because uh, her, her father is Dutch. And he learns from her mother that she was a concubine to the Dutchman, uh, to the Dutch rancher who had a dairy uh, in, in, in Indonesia. Um, and so basically it's kind of a, a coming of age story. It's beautifully written. And by the end, spoiler alert, I'm sorry, um, his wife is taken from him because of these Dutch laws that are the equivalent of Jim Crow laws in the American South. And so if you answer it, if you ask it um, generally, I think you need to answer it specifically. Uh, black literature is another great example. If you see racism as, you know, the, the anti-racist texts through African-American literature are beautiful beautiful literature and there's so many examples that we could give I agree. and it's political no 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 but hang on a second i i agree but that's a case where they're not it's not turning around like you take a nina simone strange fruit as like an example it's like okay when i talk about like answers politically she that that this is clearly on a human level clearly this is what she's describing is crazy and wrong um, and, but it's not a policy proposal. It's not, I mean, you, you could interpret that as, as being such, you could say, okay, would she support anti-lynching laws? Of course, but that's not the, the re if that was merely what was going on, it would be as art, it would be useless. Maybe. I think, I think artists are masters of subverting an idea of what art supposedly can't do. And I think um, I just described the first book of, um, of Promodia's Buru Quartet, and it does exactly what you're saying, to agree with you. Um, it has to happen on a human level. It has to touch us person to person. It has to make, it has to do art as well as politics. But it's still, you know, um, his first book, does something that's the equivalent of African-American literature here. It makes it human. Um, it makes us see, no matter what our background is, how the atrocities of the Jim Crow South or the slave system or, or whatever we're looking at in terms of the period we're examining is a crime against a human. And I think that's when it works. But I think um, 
you know, Toni Morrison is one of the great examples. Lorraine Hansberry is another great example. Um, she was pushing back against this idea. First of all, there had been no mainstream, but I, I, I shouldn't say that. There hadn't been a, a record, um, a much of a record to stand on of the white theater world welcoming in uh, a black playwright like her. And so she broke the barriers in that sense, but she also went further. She wrote plays about international affairs. She wrote plays consciously from a political perspective, but she made it work in the same way that Arthur Miller did with um, Death of a Salesman and his plays about, about actually about McCarthyism, like The Crucible is of course all about McCarthyism and it's political. Um, so the examples that push back against this idea of a general, which is not what you're saying, a general sort of, it has to not be political, um, are too numerous to, for, for that idea to stand on. Like politics is always there um, yes. in some form or another. Uh, but, but I think overly prescribed politics can feel very uh, flat. On the other hand, um, Promodia's books are seen by some, including his translator, Max Lane, um, uh, as a roadmap for the student movement that brought down um, Suharto in 1998. I've been examining that question uh, by reading everything I could and actually doing some interviews with the surviving members of the student movement in 98 to see if they read his, his Buru Quartet as a roadmap. Uh, you know, quick aside, Suharto was in power from 65 through 98, 33 years, and um, protest movements were part of how he came to power. He sort of paid these students to, to campaign outside Sukarno's presidential palace to make it look like Sukarno was less popular than he was to, to depose him. But then um, student movements rose up against Suharto every decade and they always failed. And one of the things in uh, Promodia's books that is a political program prescribed in a novel that I think works as a novel opinions do vary on this. In the third book, he talks about getting from newspapers in uh, the Indonesian sort of mainstream language before Bahasa Indonesian was coined, Malay, um, the most popular language. Getting newspapers started in that language was part of nation building. Then he talks about how student groups, labor groups, farm groups had to come together to, to, to throw the Dutch out. And when that was starting to work, then the police forces started doing intelligence tricks to penetrate the movements and split them up. And he shows how the splitting works in the fourth book by jumping to a different narrator after his primary narrator gets arrested. Now, I know that's a, that's a mouthful that I just said, said to you, but I think these novels work as novels and they're prescribing a political platform that actually helped bring down Suharto. I don't, I don't want to overstate how much it helped, but some people like Max Lane say it was a key to bringing down Suharto and it was a nation building political program that was spelled out through characters beautifully written as literature and it's one of the examples um, I've been hunting for to best show two things. One, when we championed people like um, <clears throat> Pasternak in Russia, we did it not with altruistic reasons, but for weaponization purposes of the Cold War. Because while we were championing people like Pasternak, although it happened a little bit before Promoti's arrest, and later on Solzhenitsyn, uh, which coincides with um, with 
Promotia's arrest. We were letting people like Promotia rot in a gulag in the far east of Indonesia. So, and 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 what we liked about Pasternak and Solzhenitsyn is their political program. It's it's their critique of the Soviet system that is the very reason we championed them. They happen to be great writers. That helps. But the fact that we championed them had nothing to do with staying out of politics, if you know what I mean. So totally. And, and it, it's part of my feeling about this is uh, similar to something that Noam Chomsky said, which is that when he, he said that when he's reading a novel, he very consciously tries to not let it influence his politics. And I think that is, uh, I, I think that's quite a defensible position, even if a novel has some political utility. The like, it, it's just, it, it reminds me of like sweeping oratory, where someone is sort of taking advantage, really, of the crowd and shutting off the part of their brain that thinks and delivering some just because of the, the, the jingle of their words and, and, you know, the thumping of the podium, they're able to get people uh, on a certain platform. And even if that platform is beneficial and I agree with it, I think the mechanism used to do that long-term is not what is going to build uh, a great society. Because I do think people have to be thinking independently and not be sort of swept over. Like another concrete example is Uncle Tom's Cabin that apparently convinced a lot of people for the first time that slavery was wrong. But you go back and read it and it's not, it doesn't hold up as a novel. Um, and it, it seems like you can get these sort of gushes of emotion every once in a while. Um, but it's not, it's, it's like any form of passion. It rises quickly and dissipates quickly as well. I just, I think there's gotta be a better way to get people on board with a program. Again, that's just my take on it. I hear you, I hear you. It's, it's um, I think, again, I think in the abstract or if we're selecting certain works over others, I, I think it's compelling what you're saying. And Baldwin himself critiqued Uncle Tom's Cabin as as flawed as art, flawed for its sentimentality. Yeah. And he compared it, he compared it to Richard Wright, where um, his scale, I think, generally speaking, was that liberal sentimentalism or sentimentality um, kind of pitied uh, black people. And um, whereas Richard Wright kind of made uh, his art from anger. And if you're looking at those two extremes on either end, it's bad art. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think what you're describing is, is, is possible, whether there's politics in it or not. Bad art is rampant. Um, bad political art is, is another version of bad art, but um, I, I, I think the impulse uh, to resist the politics that's in good art that might also be good politics right. is, seeded, is seeded into us through these things. But it's interesting when you go to Hollywood and you think of something that made you cry, 
And it happens to have happened in history in a way that makes you realize that there's politics there because history and politics are kind of indistinguishable uh, parts of a plot, for instance, in a character. So, so for me, uh, one of the one of the kind of early people who helped me see how bad our politics, uh, our, our politics of intervention could be was Oliver Stone, like early Oliver Stone, born on the 4th of July, Salvador. Um, some of those stories are white savior stories now. They don't hold up. But at the time, they were poking through this idea that what Americans were doing overseas was a good thing. Now, that's more of a popular art, of course. And um, from a certain political art standpoint, some of it holds up. Um, but... I, I don't really disagree with what you're saying. I don't, I don't think it's the politics that makes bad art bad art. I think it's the bad art that makes bad art bad art. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I mean, that, uh, that same, uh, what we just brought up about Oliver Stone sort of reminds me of like uh, in Forrest Gump, where, you know, which is a very emotional people, or a vo emotional movie for a lot of people. And I watched it again recently and I'm like, oh my God, I, I didn't realize this as a kid, but you have moments where like uh, one of the anti-war protesters, who's just this, this piece of shit, who's, you know, a dirty hippie and he, he beats Jenny, the, you know, oh, yeah. our heroine. And then Forrest dressed in, in soldier's uniform comes and saves her. And it's like that same device can be used for good. And, and like you, there are people who think that Forrest Gump is a great movie. And um, I, I, I don't think it's great, but I can maybe see where they're coming from. And it's just that same mechanism that could be used for a positive to get people on board a program is so easy to just like really manipulate people. Where like, I, I remember people afterwards watching that around me were like, oh yeah. And they had it as though like this really happened as though this was like something that was a true picture of reality. And like, yeah, these hippies, these wife beating hippies, whereas these heroic soldiers. And uh, it, it's like, man, I wish I could just like create some distance in people's mind between the art, especially art that has that power uh, and, you know, yourself, you know, like. Is yeah, that well, um. Well, I think I think you just raised a point that that I was trying to work my way to, which is the the I consider our sort of interventionist policies around the world, where we've been uh, allowing ourselves to commit coups rampantly, to overthrow leaders we didn't like, um, and then also to enforce that through sanctions, which hurt ordinary people. That's been pretty well established, um, and they don't tend to work either, really, unless. You know, certain certain cases of sanctions work. So we have this free hand, and that is constantly, constantly supported in, for instance, our mass audience films. Right, our our foreign policy intervention uh, is depicted in films as this one kind of white savior narrative, and it can go the other way too. So that that in itself can be bad art, and we have a lot of communities, uh, writing communities of color on Twitter and elsewhere kind of calling out white saviorism, whether it's coming kind of from a left-wing point of view or a right-wing point of view. But if you think about another moment of, of hippies being portrayed, born on the 4th of July when Ron Kovic finally gets up the nerve to go out in his wheelchair 
to protest the war. Mm. And Jenny forgets, uh, not Jenny, what's her name? Uh, she's played by um, Robin Wright Penn, Robin Wright at the time. Uh, I forget her first name uh, as a character. She leaves him on the steps, not realizing that he can't go up. She walks up the steps of one of the national monuments. So he goes out into the protest alone and he starts getting beaten by one of these hippies who we quickly realize is a is an FBI or some other kind of police operative there to turn the protest into violence, which is what which is one of the, the, the playbooks. And it's something that Promodia talks about in his fourth book. These splitters um, who start off, you know, managing what we read through literary magazines and end up trying to destroy protest movements. And that's a radical moment in a movie. And that happens in the 90s. And at the end of the 90s and 96, the CIA starts to manage how films portray the CIA and the military. You can't use their hardware. You can't use their logo unless they've read the script and approved it. Censorship. And Zero Dark Thirty was made in this atmosphere. And if you think that's a right-wing messaging, that's being enforced in all of our films, but you don't think left art, left-wing art right. should have an answer, which is not what you're saying, I know. Right, but, yeah. but, but movies are a place where we need, we need more anti-war voices, anti-war filmmakers, like the early Oliver Stone uh, and you know, international Iranian directors and people who are criticizing their governments and, uh, you know, filmmakers of color, so many great ones to name, but Boots Riley, uh, man, his, his film, uh, uh, what was his film called? Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, There's, uh, uh, can, what, what is the one where he's the, the telemarketer? Can I, can I? Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry to bother you. Yeah, sorry to bother you, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's explicitly <laughs> about politics. Uh, and it's inc incredible. It's an incredible mo movie. So I think we need to keep complicating this question that, you know, art can't have a political platform or agenda or policy. It can't be programmatic. Some great artists are constantly complicating that. And if 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 the powers that be didn't believe in co-opting art on the right for for interventionist arguments, then we could probably rest and we could write non-political art, but since they are constantly telling us uh, about this hierarchy of American power and American intervention and how it's always used for good, which is, which is total horseshit, then I think we have to, we have to be willing to complicate that. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, do you think that through, through some of these films and some of these novel ideas, I think, I think you're still not quite convinced, right? Well, it, because then it sounds almost like, okay, look at, look at this form of propaganda. We got to fight their propaganda with ours. And it's like, if that's the motivation for it, um, then I, I almost feel like either A, it should be more naked and be like explicitly propaganda or B, uh, perhaps, I mean, it, this ultimately feels like uh, co-opting people's minds when, when you have Forrest Gump you know, or, or, or Zero Dark Thirty is maybe even a better example because it was the CIA explicitly gave them sort of instructions and gave them, uh, you know, access to materials, et cetera, that right. trade a certain answer and said like, well, this torture led to bin Laden, which is not true. Um, but it, it, 
it's like, okay, perhaps like there's the constant question of, can you, uh, you know, take down the master's house with the master's tools. And I feel like that's perhaps what is going on here. And I, I err on the side of, of caution of participating in that kind of fight. Not that it should, shouldn't be fought, but uh, should it be fought on this battleground uh, or, or with these mechanisms? I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily convinced. I hear you. The, the, the way that movies are made, it's, it's very expensive. And so the master's tools would include owning your own intelligence agency, having a bureaucracy that makes liaise, liaise with the filmmakers, blocking them from you know, using your hardware. But if you think about how Boots Riley made that film, and I'm a little embarrassed that all my examples you know, started with Oliver Stone and our domestic American examples, Algiers. Right. Is that the name of that, that great film about the kind of the guerrilla movement um, yeah. uh, or um, or State of Siege by uh, by Costa Gavras about um, unnamed Uruguayan kind of uh, battles um, to, to sort of left wing movements, which included sabotage and things like that. There's so many great examples in film alone uh, of subverting the master's tools subverting them because you don't have as big a budget, but you know how to do good art. And I would say this too, um, this idea against social realist art as kind of a movement of the Cold War, the American century. Zero Dark Thirty as art is a great film. It's just as politics, it's a big fat lie. Um, it's realism, if not social realism, because it's trying to make us more antisocial. It's, def it's a defense of torture that didn't actually work it's, it's a lie that was such a lie that Diane Feinstein walked out on it when she started watching it. She walked out on it and complained that this was a big fat lie. So if anyone can make a social realist film or make a film that looks like a social realist film, like the makers of, I mean, those are talented filmmakers. I'm not going to take that away from them. But anyone can make good art. It's just if the message is always going along with the master's messages, then you know, you're basically, as Howard Zinn would have said, you're basically, you're standing, you're standing still on a moving train. You're trying to go backwards on a moving train. If the drift of our art remains this kind of only, only right-wing individualistic pro-intervention messages can uh, prove acceptable because they're quote apolitical, then I think we're, we're, we're we're, we're denying ourselves one important tool. That's all I would say. It's not the only tool. Yes. Um, I, I can accept that. I agree with that. Hey. I'm I, I, doing yeah. uh, Yes. Um, with, with certain caveats that I've mentioned, but I, yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, so, look, we're, we're, at, uh, we're at about an hour here. I don't want to take up any more of your time. I do want to know, though, before we go, did you hear from anybody from any of these magazines after you published your book? Did, did anybody say, oh, we're sorry or, you know, how dare you? Uh, mm, good good question. Uh, you know, I, I do talk about how Emmy Humes was disappointed that the Paris Review didn't um, champion her film about her father, which was an important early uh, discussion of the, the Paris Review's ties. And since we, we touched on it, I'll just say the Paris Review was somebody's cover. Um, it was doing, it was publishing great literature. I really admire um, a lot about 
some of those founders, including George Plimpton. I think he was a great guy. He was beloved in New York. Um, but then they were working with the Congress for Cultural Freedom to sort of recycle their big um, author interviews. And so, so I think it was kind of a small intervention. But what just happened recently was um, one of their founders, John Train, died. And um, when I interviewed him, it became kind of a last chapter in the book. He was doing, he was trying to do, it's not clear how much he did. He was trying to do refugee, he was doing refugee work in Afghanistan, but he was also trying to do media he was trying to do propaganda through documentaries in Afghanistan in the 80s uh, when the United States was working with the seed groups, the warlords and everyone else uh, who ended up becoming Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda and giving us our, our Bush war. So it's all kind of circular. Um, but uh, when, uh, let's say, friends in common tell me uh, things about somebody like John Train, this founder of the Paris Review, you know, one hears that family members acknowledge that he did some of the stuff, you know, they shrug and say, yep, he was, he was just a cold warrior. Um, friends of friends tell me that um, other people, you know, have had some sympathy with the argument, but, um, but not, not a ton, to be honest, not a ton of uh, any of this back channel stuff. I mean, Emmy Humes was kind of my connector to that world. Uh, and um, who has a, a great new book out, by the way, right now, The Only Woman. Um, and so I've heard things um, indirectly. I, I, I did say this at, at the end of Finks, like I think having this history on the hands of any future generations of Paris Review editors is a little bit of a burden. Um, it was a secret program that some of those really great editors inherited. And, uh, it won't, the, the further they get from that moment in time in the Cold War, the less it'll feel like any individual's editor's responsibility to sort of clear up the record. But when my book came out, uh, Megan O'Rourke interviewed me on stage at the Brooklyn Public Library where I worked. My, my boss put this together generously. Um, one of their columnists uh, came on stage with Emmy and myself. Um, and so it was kind of a, Megan O'Rourke had, had started her career at the Paris Review, among other places. Um, and so there's a lot of good, honest people at, at any of these organizations. You know, I have friends who worked at the New Leader late in its life um, before I think it went defunct. And so none of this was ever personal. What I was looking at is how if, if, if journalism lives and dies on transparency, like we call someone out if they take money from a group that they're reporting on, if they write a favorable op-ed about somebody that they take money from and they don't admit that, we yeah. call that out because of the rules of transparency in media. This was by definition fucking with that rule. You have people in media who are getting money from the government to do interventionist arguments and work and don't admit it publicly because they've signed a secrecy contract. It's, it's a contradiction in terms and we need to be very wary of it as you know, journalism tries to forever find its footing in a world of social media where you know, Facebook is basically a monopoly on all their ad money and they're dying off. So it's it's part of the story of why the media is dying off. There we go. Uh, Joel, before we go, do you have a, a website uh, or anything that people can go to? Yeah, you can find me on joelwhitney.net. Excellent. All right, the book is Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. Joel, thank you very much for your time. Great, great to talk with you, Duncan. Cheers. All right, cheers. Bye.
Thank you to Joel Whitney, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.